Hi, my name's Joel Quirk. Um, I'm here today to give a session which specifically focuses upon the relationship between anti-slavery, opposition to slavery as an institution, and the larger history of European colonialism and imperialism. So in this context, I'm particularly concerned with a period that comes after where and how most people think about the history of enslavement and abolition. And that is the late 19th and early 20th century, which comes after transatlantic slavery had formally come to an end in the 1860s in terms of the trade and then 1888 in terms of Brazil. And I'm instead interested in thinking about how opposition to slavery came to be embedded within larger models of hierarchy and supremacy where Europeans congratulated themselves at being at the apex of the moral and political universe and what followed from that in terms of how anti-slavery was used to justify various wars of unprovoked colonial aggression and colonization. So, so that's the broader remit of the project. And I'm especially concerned with thinking about the ideology and practice of paternalism. As the name paternalism kind of implies, this is the relationship between an adult and a child. And in the context of European colonialism, this image was used to set up hierarchies wherein Europeans appointed themselves as the saviors and protectors of peoples in other parts of the world and used this as the basis for an ideology which was enabling the, the, the conquest and colonization and the justification therein. So I'm going to focus on primarily upon the history of slavery and abolition in Africa and I'm particularly interested in how anti-slavery provided a justification for unprovoked wars of conquest and the, the, the consequences that followed therein. So on my second slide, I have two images. The first image is, comes from the, the, the Haitian Revolution, uh, which most famously kind of peaks in the, the, the proclamation of the world's first black republic in 1804. And alongside it, I have uh, the Wedgworth icon of Am I Not Man and Brother, which was one of the key images associated with British campaigns against the abolition of slavery. And I put these two up because I think they usefully capture different ways in which anti-slavery can be understood and advanced politically. On the one hand, anti-slavery can be radical and revolutionary. It can be tied to uh, a politics of egalitarianism. It can be tied to a challenge to hierarchy, a challenge to supremacy. And it can, in some cases at least, lead to forms of kind of violent revolt and upheaval. And the Haitian Revolution is the, the strongest example we have of this. But in the Atlantic world, in the Americas in particular, in the late 18th and early 19th century, anti-slavery was revolutionary. It was implicated in, in wars of independence in Latin America. It was tied to arguments over what kind of nation the United States would be. 
and it was implicated in, in wars fought by the enslaved themselves against their enslavers. So this is one version of the politics of anti-slavery. The second version, which is captured in, in the Am I Not Man and Brother version, is points to a very different type of politics. This is not a politics of equality, but instead a politics of hierarchy, wherein someone in supplication on bended knee, chained and enslaved, asked for external intervention from a benevolent outsider who is privileged in their position and altruistic in their intervention on behalf of common humanity. So it's these two images of anti-slavery that I think we need to, to, to grapple with and understand. They're slightly simplified here, but both are historically powerful and significant. But it's the second of these, this kind of Im image of, of paternalism, of, of supplicants and sa saviors, that I'm most interested in this presentation because it speaks to the later history of organized anti-slavery and its relationship to patterns of European imperialism and colonialism. So a lot of the time when people talk about anti-slavery, the conversation is very much focused on the Atlantic world and it ends at least in a formal sense in, in, in the, the mid stages or late stages of the 19th century. I want to extend this history of anti-slavery to focus in what happens next and what happens next, as in my next slide, is that anti-slavery becomes incorporated into larger political formations which saw European states and their peoples come to exercise political authority over huge stretches of the, the rest of the world and justify this political authority on the basis of an idea that humanity was naturally and organically organized into separate groups. These groups were racially defined, they were politically defined, and in some cases they were technologically defined. And from a European perspective in the late 19th and early 20th century, they assigned themselves as being at the pinnacle of this hierarchy. So understood in terms of supremacy and hierarchy, anti-slavery becomes a property which is used to justify conquest and colonization. So in my next slide, I have a number of examples which are drawn from the, the history of conquest and colonization in Africa. So at the, the infamous Berlin Congress of 1885, which is associated with, with the idea of petition or scramble, the conquest and colonization of Africa was at least partly justified in terms of a commitment, I quote, to watch over the preservation of native tribes and to care for the improvement of the conditions of their moral and material being, well-being, and to help in suppressing slavery, bringing home to them the blessings of civilization. Similarly, five years later, at the Brussels Act 
which is an international congress which was specifically convened to deal with the problem of slavery in Africa. The final document declares a firm intention to put an end to the crimes and devastations engendered by the trafficking African slaves and of securing the benefits of peace and civilization. Similarly, after the Great War, we have another commitment to preserve, suppress moral and material well-being and so on and so forth. So here we see anti-slavery embedded within larger processes of conquest and colonization. And I don't want, I need to be precise here, it's not that anti-slavery is a driving force for colonization. Political and economic interests, as they're always the case, are the dominant kind of animating factor, but it proves to be an extremely powerful justification in order to help move forward decisions that were taken for other reasons and in pursuit of other interests. So in my next slide, we see how this is constructed. We have a French journal, a French image where the, the Lady Liberty shows up in Morocco, bringing light and civilization and food. And once again, we see an example of, of who's standing and who's kneeling and how that gets visually represented in terms of hierarchies of race and moral standing and so on. We also see on the right-hand side, an image taken which looks at the Congo River Basin, drawn from a Roman kind of iconography, where a, a noble Roman or Roman-inspired figure is being implored by a cleric in order to intervene, in order to protect and defend against horrors that have been perpetrated in Africa. So both of these images and the larger worldview of which they are part seek to convert conquest and colonization into an exercise in benevolent altruism, which serves some higher purpose. And in effect, conquest and colonization becomes not simply something that benefits Europeans, but is ultimately and incorrectly said to benefit the, the conquered and colonized themselves. So anti-slavery here functions as a potent symbol of vice and virtue. Europeans were some of the most successful slavers in world history. They built up massive colonial empires in the new world or their new world um, on the back of enslaved African labor to the point where between five and six enslaved Africans were forced to travel to the New World on slave ships prior to 1820 uh, relative to one European. So, so enslaved Africans build Europe's New World. They create elaborate and highly successful uh, plantation complexes and other forms of wealth. And over the course of the 19th century, this history of successful enslavement is replaced instead by 
a self-congratulatory rhetoric where being opposed to slavery becomes a virtue which Europeans ascribe to themselves and the presence of slavery in other parts of the world becomes a symbol of why and how European paternalism is necessary and desirable. So anti-slavery is swallows the history and legacies of enslavement as far as Europeans are concerned. This symbol of enslavement works powerfully in order to justify conquest and colonization, but a very different pattern emerges once colonial authority has been established. So violence in the name of civilization firstly becomes a property of how and why colonialism is established in the first place. But once colonies are established, we see other patterns and practices and forms of economic extraction emerge. So the Brussels conference, which focused on the Congo River Basin, was convened in Brussels because it took place under the auspices of, of the infamous King Leopold of Belgium, who used the anti-slavery cause in order to justify the establishment of a vast colonial empire. And in the name of anti-slavery, that empire was established, yet in practice, his empire becomes infamous for the wholesale death and destruction associated with the production and shipping of rubber. And, and here we have somewhere in the region, and, and estimates are always kind of slightly like worrying because they're never so accurate, but it's nonetheless the case that Congo Free State was responsible for death and destruction that was easily measured in the millions. On the right-hand side, you'll see another example of violence in the name of civilization. This is a bunch of Italian soldiers who are clustered around a mustard gas bomb, which the Italians deployed in 1835 as part of their conquest and colonization of, of Ethiopia, Abyssinia. And here, once again, the Italians invoked the presence of slavery in Abyssinia, Ethiopia, as a crucial part of their justification for why conquest and colonization was necessary. This was once again invoked in humanitarian terms, but it's a particularly stark example because it's extremely difficult to justify dropping mustard bombs and other chemical weapons on a civilian population as a humanitarian exercise. Yet this is nonetheless the case of what happens in relation to anti-slavery as colonization. So, so here we see anti-slavery becoming the basis for conquest, but one, once conquest is established, you see other interests emerging. You see the widespread pursuit of forced labor, which is once again justified as being an exercise in paternalism, wherein forcing people to work is understood to be educative. Um, in relation to uh, production of cash crops, 
rubber being the only one amongst many. We have forced labor being used in the production of railways, in, in making, forcing people to move goods long distances. And we also have various other colonial forms of extraction, forcing people to grow crops, forcing people to pay taxes um, in currency that can only be acquired by working through colonial uh, institutions and so on. So anti-slavery is used to justify colonization, but once colonization takes place, you quickly discover that, that the European colonial order was based around systems of extraction and violence and coercion. Um, these were justified, and this is my next slide, as being different to slavery. So forced labor was said to be legitimate in ways that slavery were not, was not because it was understood to have a public purpose and serve uh, a larger purpose than simply private interests. But in most cases, the colonial state and, and colonial settlers and others were working in lockstep in order to develop the, the, the economies of the, the countries and places they'd conquered for their own interests. So here I have a quote from Eric Alina, where he points out that the formal language of the law concealed actual practice. The activity by which local officials conscripted tens of thousands of Africans annually was called recruitment though it amounted to nothing more than major, either at the hands of armed police or the threat of their deployment, those conscripted were said to have been contracted for work, that the workers never saw, must less signed, a written contract made no difference. And once again, in my next slide, we see an attempt to redefine slavery in such a way that firstly, forced labor schemes were excluded from its definition. And secondly, that any practices that the colonialism had failed to take into account would be redefined out of being a problem for the colonial state. So this is again, the, the League of Nations from 1932 which was itself an, uh, an international organization which sought to protect and defend colonialism, declares that where slavery is concerned, there continue to be certain kinds of social status in which men are not yet enjoyment of full civil freedom, but which are in no sense inhuman and which in certain ways assistance to the sick and infirm even prevent present advantages. A social status of this kind cannot be equitably assimilated to slavery in the usual sense of the term without running the risk of giving the civilized world an incorrect and unfair impression. So here we see colonial states creating a permission structure to firstly use forced labor on an epic scale and to secondly having initially declared that, that, that slavery was abhorrent to instead redefine any practices that occurred under their jurisdiction as falling outside the remit of their anti-slavery obligations. What does this mean in practical terms? 
it means that we're left with a landscape in colonial Africa where a series of legal fictions are established. These legal fictions firstly declare that, that slavery is abolished. And then secondly, that forced labor is qualitatively and fundamentally different to enslavement. These two fictions create a political and social landscape where the onus for social and political change falls upon enslaved Africans and opponents of the colonial regime more generally. So in my next slide, I, I have a, a tagline that talks about resistance and reconfiguration. This is a huge topic, which I can't adequately address in the time I have available. So I've decided to highlight two specific books, which I think provide useful entry points for grappling with some of these issues. The first comes from Martin Klein, which talks about the, the history of slavery and colonial rule in French West Africa. French West Africa being the, the largest colonial territory in Africa, kind of running from Senegal in the West through to uh, Niger and, and Mali um, in the East. Um, so under French colonial rule, we have slavery nominally abolished in, in, in the early 20th century. We have large scale forced labor schemes introduced in order to advance the colonial economy. And we also have important examples of uh, slaves resisting and reconfiguring their individual and collective status under colonial rule. So, so Martin Klein's book is, is, is particularly notable because he documents an exodus of slaves or what he describes as an exodus of, of slaves in 1905, which is, he describes as the Benamba Exodus, which involves hundreds of thousands of enslaved peoples leaving their masters and seeking to return to their homes or to establish new communities away from the, the, the control of their former masters. The second book I have here is from Emily Burrell, also focusing on colonial French West Africa, who looks at the relationship between forms of marriage and enslavement. And this is specifically concerned with the ways in which anti-slavery measures and forced labor schemes and other colonial inventions were highly gendered in both their scope and application. So anti-slavery ordinances introduced under colonial rule um, in West Africa had a primacy upon men and women and children were understood to be the dependents of their husbands, but in a lot of cases, the dividing line between husbands and masters was not necessarily so clear. And as a consequence, claims about marriage and claims about children were frequently invoked as a defensive strategy 
in order to ensure that traditional prerogatives and rights were protected and extended in the aftermath of legal ordinances. So these books and others like them point to a complicated and ambiguous process where laws were introduced but not effectively enforced. Other colonial systems of economic extraction were overlaid on top of them. And formerly enslaved peoples were obliged to resist and renegotiate and reconfigure the previous hierarchies that were associated with enslavement and other forms of bondage. This is conventionally described as being part of a slow death for slavery in Africa. The slow death language is used to describe the fact that systems of bondage that were supposed to be abolished uh, through the passing of legislation instead persisted in a lot of cases decades after uh, they'd been formally announced. So here, resistance takes on complicated properties in relation to both collective rebellion, the exodus and others like it, and also individual reconfiguration and contestation within family and interpersonal relationships. Now, there's two responses that I wanna to highlight to the relationship between anti-slavery and colonialism in colonial Africa. One response comes from within empire. It comes from colonial reformers. And here I have an example from H.R. Fox Bourne from the Anti-Slavery and Aboriginal Protection Society from the early 20th century, who argued that the promise of colonization was not being realized in practice. These colonial reformers tend to be supportive of the colonial project as a whole, but instead focus on what they regard as its excesses. So here the quote says, the European force has done something towards destroying these practices, slavery. No one will deny. And there is abundant evidence that British rule, insofar it is just and generous, is welcome and cheerfully submitted to by all African communities over whom it has been established. But it is also undeniable that there has often been injustice as well as lack of generosity. In the making of African omelets for white men's consumption, there has been a reckless breaking of the blackheads appropriated for this purpose. Now here, it's important to emphasize that, that colonial reformers shared the racist and hierarchical assumptions that were prevalent within their own societies at the time. The idea of a just and generous colonialism in effect implicates them in the broader colonial project wherein their goal is to ensure that it lives up to this ideal of a just and generous colonialism, rather than instead understanding colonial authority as the problem, which is the ultimate root cause of all other things they seek to fight. So we have examples of colonial reform projects, 
notably in relation to the, the, the Belgian Congo, where King Leopold was eventually forced to cede authority to the Belgian government. We also have examples in, in, in uh, Lusophone Africa, in Angola and Mozambique, where arguments were made from within empire that there had been excesses associated with the colonial project in terms of the, the use of forced labor and death and destruction. But it's notable that both of these cases in, in, in Belgium and, and Portugal were specifically targeted against junior members of the European colonial project. It's noted, for example, that, that French Equatorial Africa was subject to many of the same forms of extreme abuse that were uh, taking place in, in the Belgian Congo, yet French Equatorial Africa did not attract the same amount of interest and concern. So instead of understanding the colonial project as being inherently problematic, colonial reformers instead argued that it could be made more perfect in the sense of realizing this vision of a just and generous colonialism. There is, of course, a countervailing view, which instead of regarding colonialism as a fundamentally legitimate project that, that was subject to a few excesses and oversights and problems, it's instead the colonial project in its entirety, which is ultimately the source of the violence and extraction and abuse that are associated uh, with European footprint in colonial Africa. So I, I've here given three examples, one from Kwame Nkrumah, where he declares that policies of the colonial powers are rooted in economic exploitation and not humanitarianism. I have Amy Césaire, colonialism was defined by relations of domination and submission, which turned the colonizing man into a classroom monitor, army sergeant, prison guard, slave driver, and the indigenous man into an instrument of production. And then finally and most famously, we have Fanon, who declares that the colonized people, these slaves of modern times, have run out of patience. Now, there's a lot that could be said about the move from colonial authority to decolonization. What is important for my purposes here is that these and other similar challenges spoke directly to the heart of the pretension of paternalist protection and the idea that benevolent outsiders can and should intervene in order to look after the so-called welfare of their subjects. So when the argument is made that colonialism is the fundamental problem, it's an argument that is in part at least focusing on the inherent implausibility of this image of paternalistic protection. And we see this finally in my last slide where I draw a contrast between the League of Nations which following the Great War endorses paternalism 
on the grounds that so-called backwards peoples are not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. And I contrast this with the transformation which took place uh, in the end of the Second World War, where the, in 1960, the United Nations concludes that an end must be put to colonialism and all practices of segregation and discrimination, and that all peoples have a right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Now, these two declarations are only declarations. The mindsets that are associated with both still continue to, to resonate and have political effects in various ways to the, the, the present day. And we see this most notably in, 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 in people like Teju Cole, who talks about the white savior industrial complex, which speaks to the continued significance of, of this model of paternalistic protection. But ultimately, we're left with a situation where these ideas of hierarchy and supremacy have lost much, but not sadly all, of their public legitimacy. And as a consequence, we remain and should be justifiably suspicious of uh, uh, interventions which seek to cast outsiders in the role of altruistic and benevolent protectors. Because in a lot of cases, this language of altruism and benevolence and paternalism becomes a justificatory framework, which is used to justify and extend various political and economic interests. Thanks.